Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. What I'll often do when I do workshops is I'll ask my the team that's in there, the, the group I'm working with, I'd like you to take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it. On the left-hand side, I want you to write at the top of the page, best boss ever, best manager ever. And on the right-hand side, write worst boss ever, worst manager ever, whatever you want to call it. And then I ask them to list underneath that why. Why was this leader so great? What made you love them? What was it about them that was unique or different or special that made you willingly follow them and want to run through brick walls for them? And then what was it about the other one that made you hate them, you know, abhor them, you know, whatever it might be? And after they write down all the things, I say, now next to each one, I want you to write either IQ or EQ. Is this an intelligence quotient competence issue? or is this an, an emotional quotient empathy connection issue? Uh, on all the classes I've been doing this, and I just did it with a group at Wharton, it's 10 to one or higher EQ to IQ. This is Humane, a weekly podcast focused on bridging the gap between humans and machines in this age of acceleration. My name is David Jakobovich, and on this podcast, I interview experts in sociology, psychology, artificial intelligence, researchers on consumer-facing products and consumer-facing companies to help audiences better understand AI and its many capabilities. If you like the show, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Hey listeners, this is David Jakobovich from the Humane Podcast. If you want to anticipate the market, learn about the future of business, or hear from one of the top 50 business leaders of our time, this episode is for you. 
What insights have Sergey Brin and Steve Jobs shared with John Spence? What can John's new TED Talk on adaptable intelligence teach us? How is AI being implemented with small farmers and Monsanto? Learn how to stay ahead of the market and to be part of the future of business with autonomous systems. Tune in now. Welcome back, everyone, to the Humane Podcast, where we're bridging the gap of humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. Again, I'm your host, David Jakobovich, and today I am honored to have a colleague I've known for more than a quick minute. Uh, John Spence is one of the top business experts in the world. He's an author, he's a keynote, he's a speaker works in workshops and executive coaching with the Fortune 500s traveling the world. John, thanks for being with us today. It's my honor, David, truly. Uh, thank you so much. You know, for all of our listeners here today on the podcast, I originally met John uh, when I was an undergrad student at the University of Florida, and uh, it was my first foray in business being involved in a case competition class. And, you know, John was one of the, the keynotes for the week talking to us about thought leadership, the future of business, always thinking about the big picture. Um, that inspired me to, in that case competition class, fly to Singapore, compete um, for Prudential, and, and our team actually placed in the top eight, which was very exciting. Um, of course, fast forward a few years, businesses are always evolving, and the future of business is a topic at hand. Uh, John, I know you do a lot in that space. Could you share some of your thought leadership on what's going on with businesses? Yeah, I, um, David, I was at Wharton actually last week, uh, and every year I go, it's my 19th year for the Securities Industry Institute, and I get executives from all the top financial firms in America, uh, mostly vice president, director, or global director uh, level or above, and we're talking about how uh, technology is impacting not only the financial industry, uh, but every industry that they serve, and to give you... we. I, a couple of years ago, I attended a thing called the Abundance 360 with Peter Diamandis, and we had Sergey Brin, Larry Page, uh, Jeff Bezos, on and on and on and on. Uh, they're speaking, and the fun thing there was, oftentimes you go to a, a, a conference and people are talking about what they heard from other people. It was fun to sit and listen to the actual folks who were doing the work. We had Dr. Craig Venter there, who's widely recognized as the first person to decode the human genome. And we identified several um, major trends that are impacting business. And that was um, computer speed, which leads, of course, to big data, um, artificial intelligence, robotics, virtual reality, augmented reality, synthetic medicine, and uh, trying to think, uh, one, oh, uh, genetic decoding and recoding. And when I was at Wharton last week with the financial folks, it's amazing. I've been teaching the, the future of business there for about five years. The first two years I taught it, Bitcoin and blockchain did not exist. Now, when you go to them, most of the firms that I work with uh, are all now moving to blockchain. And they're competing with, uh, which everybody does, Amazon for banking. Amazon just came out with a new bank card and their uh, partner is Goldman Sachs. And they picked Goldman because they've never been in the credit card business and they wanted to be innovative and ahead of the curve. So we're seeing all kinds of interesting things in all those fields. 
I think block. I think that uh, blockchain is such a fascinating field. Um, being in New York and in the tech ecosystem, um, probably the most central place in in the world uh, in the United States, particularly for blockchain, is Brooklyn. You know, Consensus Labs is based here. There are so many startups, and what's very interesting is machine learning and AI on the blockchain. Um, I was listening to a presentation the other. Uh, week and it was from this startup that's basically taking GitHub and version control for code, but moving it to the blockchain. So I think it's so fascinating how the industry is maturing quite quickly. Yeah, and it, what's interesting too is the folks, most of the folks I deal with are very senior level people who've been in the business for 20 years, and this is radical for them. Uh, it, it's challenging. Uh, I mean, I talked to a couple of senior ex executives about Bitcoin, and I forget which one. One of them just, uh, I want to call it Nicecoin or something, just a week or two had a big anomaly spike, and uh, some of the other ones were going down. And literally, the, the folks go, I have the younger people at my firm teach me about this because I don't know what's happening. You know, technology moves so fast and myself now being in the the big data industry um, since 2010, I've seen a lot of that change, right? I got started in Fortran and COBOL on mainframes and started to move into the cloud and learn what this thing called Python is and, and all these algorithms and the complexity of those algorithms. So it's, it's evolving. And, you know, you mentioned a lot of industries that are taking off the virtual reality, the augmented reality, the AI and fintech. Uh, you know, I think uh, 2019 has shaped up to have a lot of trends and the trends seem to be no longer these are the industries, but this is, this is how they integrate together, those seamless experiences. It's, it's fascinating. Um... Monsanto is one of my clients and then I also work with several other organizations in the food production farming uh, space from cattle to chickens to grain and I was recently talking with the president of Monsanto and he was up in front of a large group uh, of agriculture folks and he said we are no longer a seed and fertilizer company we are a big data company he said, we, we use computerized systems, algorithms, drones, and what are called farm bots to go out and test the fields, to go plant by plant and look at uh, this one needs more fertilizer, this one needs more nitrogen, this one is uh, has good aeration, this one is too dry. And the farm bot specifically uh, puts the water or fertilizer or pesticide per plant as it goes through the farm, completely, uh, completely autonomous. Uh, and then they collect all that data and they use that to tell the farmer how to get more yield, a higher yield on his property and or her property. And it's interesting because they said after we do this for a couple of years, they're not going to switch, not because we have the best seeds and fertilizer, because we have all the data on their farm and they depend on us in order to figure out exactly how to get the maximum yield from their crops. Then I've got another client in Australia, uh, Land Power, that makes huge harvesters. Two interesting things there. Um, one is they've sort of started, or I, I'm seeing it started in agriculture field, Uber for harvesters. Uh, one of the big harvesters can cost a couple million bucks, and depending on how large your field is, you might need six, seven, eight if you want to get everything out, the, out of the field uh, before a storm comes or something like that. So rather than a farmer spending $6 million 
to get three heart. They just pick it up, pick up the phone, call it, or actually get on the app. They order the uh, the harvesters. The harvesters are brought to the field, and they're all autonomous. Nobody dri- nobody in them. Nobody drives them. Um, at this point, they have oftentimes have somebody sit in it, but it's all controlled by G- uh, drones, GPS, and autonomous harvesters that have harvested things from basically an autonomous field where big data has replaced seeds and fertilizer. And that's in an industry we think of as fairly um, pedestrian and, and old. Farming's probably about as old as you could get. You know, I, I spoke with one of my other guests on the Humane Podcast, and uh, her name's Kristen Carer, and we talk about a data-driven culture, how we're becoming so data-swamped, and it's how can you monetize that data. Uh, and that seems to be monetized from the examples you've shared with autonomous systems, whether it's drones, whether it's on a farm, or if it's delivering groceries, it seems that's where the industry is moving. And quite quickly, um, you know, five years ago, uh, people thought we would not get there until 2030 or beyond. But it looks like we're almost at 2020. And we're already live in production with these autonomous systems. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been teaching strategy for about 20 years all over the world doing major strategic planning uh, consulting and re, you know retreats and events for large companies, and I have a very clear. I, as you know, David, my career has been built on the idea of making complex things simple. So after many years and books and on and on and on, I boiled strategy down to this idea: all strategy is just value differentiation multiplied by disciplined execution. In other words, you have to bring something that's unique and compelling to the marketplace that your target customer wants to buy, they're happy to pay for it, that it is difficult, if not impossible, for your competition to copy, and that you can execute on uh, flawlessly and consistently. And other than, for most industries, other than maybe IP or location, which is very rare, there's only four things that meet those criteria. The quality of the people in your company, uh, the relationships you have with your customers, you, the strength of your brand, and then here's number four that's just hit the list in a couple, maybe in the last five years, the da- the data you have collected on your customers in the industry, with the caveat of it, caveat of, and how well you deploy that data, how well you mine it. So, a, one of the major di- sustainable differentiations for companies in the world now is their data and their ability to analyze the data data effectively and use that as a competitive advantage. And, you know, that competitive advantage, uh, I think, could be translated as the word momentum. And let me explain why I would see that as momentum. Uh, In the startup space, uh, looking at the business model canvas, you know, Steve Blank often talks about, you know, five things that startups need if we're focused on that niche, which is your team, your business model, the funding, the technology, IP, and the momentum. And, you know, whether we're working from your frameworks or startup frameworks, it seems that taking this data and finding uh, the right direction to move is that competitive advantage. I'll give you a quick example. I, I coach some senior ex- executives in the uh, auto automotive space and owns car dealerships. And I sat down with one of the executives yesterday. He was recently at a um, owner's meeting for people who own dealerships for Cadillac. And he said, Google has created this new tool that just came out. And I can't remember the name of the tool that tracks how many people search for a car versus how many people buy that car. 
and nationwide and you can you can compare um, brands against each other SUV versus you know full size on and on and on he showed it to me and he said do you realize that this is this is insanely valuable to my dealership because I know how to spend my marketing budget how to upsell people how to get more appointments on and on and all the things they focus on and he said this existed in Google uh, and we never knew the data was there now we have data that will allow us to significantly increase our competitive advantage in the marketplace you know most companies are afraid of data afraid of the autonomous systems being rolled out but the aha moment i'm hearing right now is if you can captivate this data with insights then you can actually grow your business even as autonomous systems are being implemented well they go hand in glove You've, your your business is going to change through automation through ai through big data there's no escaping that it has to but it's your ability to to see the trends in the data see the patterns mine the data correctly and then be able to staff um, invest in uh, and create strategies very fast strategies that take advantage of that technology before your competitors do Let's say you are a large company today. You're Warner Media and you just moved into Hudson Yards in Manhattan, or you're Disney and you're building your new 70-story skyscraper in lower Manhattan for your tech center. And you're a big company and you think you move fast, but you know you could always move faster. Um, how should you begin to think about data or if you're not already a data-driven culture? Well, you and I chatted with this a little bit before uh, the podcast started. I just did a TED Talk, and the TED Talk was on what it takes to be a, a great leader of the future. So folks who lead these companies, and I get to work shoulder to shoulder with many of them. And years ago, uh, when we looked at leadership, it was heavily weighted towards IQ. Are you brilliant? Are you smart? Did you graduate from one of the top colleges? Do you have amazing analytical skills? Uh, are you basically wildly, uh, what I would say, towering competence or wild, wild, wildly competent? Amazing what you do. Then came along EQ. And it, it's interesting. I, I work with a large engineering firm. And what I'll often do when I do workshops is I'll ask my the team that's in there, the, the group I'm working with, I'd like you to take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle of it. On the left-hand side, I want you to write at the top of the page, best boss ever, best manager ever. And on the right-hand side, write worst boss ever, worst manager ever, whatever you want to call it. And then I ask them to list underneath that why. Why was this leader so great? What made you love them? What was it about them that was unique or different or special that made you willingly follow them and want to run through brick walls for them? And then what was it about the other one that made you hate them, you know, abhor them, you know, whatever it might be? And after they write down all the things, I say, now next to each one, I want you to write either IQ or EQ. Is this an intelligence quotient competence issue or is this an, an emotional quotient empathy connection issue? Uh, on all the classes I've been doing this, and I just did it with a group at Wharton, it's 10 to 1 or higher EQ to IQ. Even in a major engineering firm, a company like Qualcomm or something like that, uh, you're going to see people that understand that leadership is more effective. Got to be, got to have a level of competence, but EQ, that connection, which by the way, is one of the things that. Um, technology will never be able to do. Uh, AI doesn't have EQ. 
uh, it doesn't make that personal human connection with empathy and concern and genuine appreciation. So that EQ thing is one of the things that, that will um, buffer people from having their jobs removed, not, not compressed, but removed. But now there's a brand new uh, quotient that's been discovered just in the last several months uh, called AQ. And AQ is your adaptability or your agility quotient. And that's your ability to take in new information quickly, discard old information that doesn't work, change your frame of reference, um, be innovative, move quickly, uh, and be extremely intellectually agile. And from everything I'm seeing in the future, which reads the next four or five years, it's actually going to flip around and it's going to be AQ is the most important quotient, EQ is the second most important quotient, and as long as you have a baseline of IQ, you're fine. So going all the way back to your question is the only way those big companies are going to do well is if their entire leadership team, their entire executive team has a very, very high AQ. You know, leadership teams are often thinking about digital transformation as I need to reskill and upskill my workforce. We have to learn the greatest, newest, shiny technology object in this tech stack because if we have tech savvy employees, then we'll crush the market and we'll beat the competition. However, what I'm hearing right now is that it's more than just this is the data and tech, this is how I solve those business problems, and this is how I can adapt to the market conditions. Yeah, actually, I, I just read a book today. A colleague of mine in uh, Russia has asked me to write the foreword to his book called The Trinity of Business, and he's used a biological model to create his, his theory. And I, I think it's going to be, it won't be out for probably another year, but I read it almost, uh, and for your your audience may not know it, but Peter Drucker is probably the most revered management thinker of all times. I believe this book is close. And, and one of the things he says is all the technology, all the leadership, all the business models, all the strategy are focused on one thing only, satisfy your customer. If, if, if your t technology is whiz bang, but it doesn't truly add value to your customer, then there's a new word we have for you. It's called bankruptcy. <laughs> so it all comes down, all this technology, big data, everything comes down to, can you take all of that and create real value for your customers, value that they're willing to spend $5, $50, or $50 million on because it satisfies a problem they have. Uh, and that's the solution to running a successful business. That's right. It needs to satisfy a real problem. You know, one startup in Silicon Valley did just the opposite. They were called Theranos, right? So you may have heard that story about- Well, I've heard a little this. bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us have. You know, it's the next wonder company, a drop of blood, know your whole medical profile. It, it's the thing that anyone would want to invest in. But the, the challenge there was, it sounds like they had that, perhaps some of that EQ and AQ from the business uh, success to grow a vision, but the technology was missing there. So yeah. you do need both sides. Well, it's it's fascinating. And you know, David, I, I, I'm pretty involved in the um, startup scene here in Gainesville, Florida, which has a great startup ecosystem, You know, really, truly among the best in the country. And Jim Collins, another great leadership thinker, talks about the three wheels of the hedgehog concept. And the hedgehog concept says, the fox has many ways to attack the hedgehog has one way to defend. Who wins every time? The hedgehog. And his, his hedgehog concept said there's three circles that overlap. 
Circle number one is something that I'm really, really good at. I have extremely high technical expertise in. And as again, my favorite phrase, towering competence. The second circle is that I'm passionate about. I, I really love this idea. I'm excited about it. It, it is my purpose. And the third circle is that it has a strong economic driver in the marketplace. And I see a lot of entrepreneurs with the first two circles really good at something that they love to do. Unfortunately, no one wants to buy it. Uh, and that's called a hobby, not a, not a company. Right. And, and you, know, you see a lot of those technologies on the shelf that take 10 years till they find the right market fit because the tech is sure 10x or 100x better than what's on the market but it just doesn't have the right business model and market um awareness if you will yeah and there's you know um there's a lot of people that think they're the next steve jobs and steve i got to work with um wozniak and jobs a little bit more wozniak and the thing about steve that was unique is he actually was one of the only people that could, antici could anticipate technology that the customer wanted that they didn't even know they wanted. Um, a lot of other entrepreneurs think they can do that. It's exceedingly rare to have someone who's that in tune. And part of the reason was, and, and it's been you know widely reported, is he was the customer. He was trying to sell to people like him. So he looked at something and said, I love this, let's build it. I hate this, throw it away. And I can't, except for maybe Phil Knight at Nike and, and maybe one or two other companies, I can't think of a company that could anticipate the market desires before, those, before they even understood it was possible. You know, anticipating the market desires is where it's at. You know, while I was in Gainesville for our listeners, you know, I participated in Startup Weekend and all these hackathons. And, you know, one of my fun non-fame to claims is building, you know, Apple AirPods, you know, eight years before it hit the market. But our team didn't know how to, like, monetize it and put <laughs> it together. So, great. You made, you made Apple AirPods, but you didn't make a billion dollars on it. So. <laughs> uh, I never knew the story of the third guy at Apple that sold his shares to those guys for like $500 because he didn't think it was going to go anywhere. And had he stayed, he would be like the third richest man in the world. But, you know, never know it what's going to happen. It happens with every company. And, you know, one thing you're mentioning is anticipating uh, the needs of the market. But another uh, attention I'd like us to change towards is uh, anticipating the market overall. And of course, that's a very hard thing to do. Even Ray Dalio talks about, you know, anticipating the market and making sure you hedge yourself uh, from different directions of the market. And, you know, right now, at least in the USA, it seems that the market might be slowing, hiring might be slowing, Europe may be having challenges, China might be investing um, income to stabilize the market. I'd like to hear from you, you know, as a business leader in these uncertain times, what are some good decisions you can do to hedge yourself? Well, there, it, it's fascinating because, you know, and I bring it back to the things I'm comfortable with. And one of the things I'm comfortable with, and I believe this is it, is your ability uh, for your ability for pattern recognition. I talk about this a lot as a strategic thinker. There's five things that go into be a good strategic thinker. Um, you've got to have a good base of knowledge. You've got to be reading, studying, uh, you know, really 
keeping up with the times, being a serious student. Number two, though, is all of the answers aren't in the books. Number two is you've got to be go out, going out and experimenting and trying new things and going to other industries, looking at things that are completely unrelated to what you do. And there's an idea called the adjacent new. And the adjacent new is when you take this business acumen you've had for years that you're studying, you know, inside and out, and you meet it meets an idea that's completely alien. You put the two together. They like each other. They go on a date. They get married. And then you have a little baby idea. That baby idea is basically your flash of insight. Um, that is your strategic inflection point. Uh, then the next thing is how to build the model around that. And last but not least, how to execute on it. And all of that comes down to the key idea of being able to recognize patterns. Um, having studied this for a while, I realized that most people that are in the very, very top of what they do around the world are good because they're they're taking in information adjacent new all those things all the time and they can connect the dots before anybody else in the marketplace can the hard part now david is the information comes so fast and there's so much of it and we're a global community it used to be i've been in business in since 1989 was my first job working for the rockefellers uh things have changed completely technology was didn't really exist that much then all I had to worry about basically was American markets. I've got my small firm. It's myself, my wife, one assistant, and a part-time bookkeeper. And we have we literally have clients in 20 countries right now out of Gainesville, Florida, uh, which, again, allows me to see some patterns before other people do because I have a wide exposure to all those things. And it's fascinating to me when I go and talk to executives of companies how narrow-minded on their own market and their own product and their own technology they are which is the thing that will kill you in your own career or as a business not casting a wide enough net to understand how everything impacts everything and we used to say that a lot in the past but today everything impacts everything we truly are a global world and you know the adjacent ideas that you just described resonates with me you know one story i heard once is that you know titanium being used in the airplane industry uh was once assessed by an engineer uh who worked for a hospital and he said why could this not be implemented to medical it could and that's how um, new materials were created for safer uh hip replacements and more sterile tools that is that adjacent industries, right? And uh, you have to be around that innovation. Yeah, you've got it, and you've got to be courageous enough to, and uh, I'm trying to think innovative enough intellectually to go say, well, I'll give you an example. The car dealership I worked with yesterday, we, we looked at all the things. It's a very competitive market. Um, the last car I bought, I bought fully online. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't go to a dealership. I didn't do anything. I click, click, click. I emailed my bank. They did the transfer. They did everything. Um, I signed electronically. I was in a different city. When I came home, my car was gone and the new car was sitting in the driveway. Didn't have to interact with a car dealer at all. So they were saying that the only way we could do this is to have a world-class customer experience. The only way we'll get someone to walk in the dealership is it has to be a truly world-class customer experience. And I said, then have you taken your entire staff to the Ritz-Carlton to see how they do it there? Do you bring in somebody from Hilton or from the best restaurant in your town and have them teach customer service? He's like, why would you do that? I said, because what you're describing is you are in the customer service business. Even though it was the same guy that said, I have this amazing new data. I can get people into the dealership. 
it doesn't do any good if they if they walk in there and they aren't wowed, delighted, excited, and it's not a great shopping, buying, and owning experience. And that's all the hospitality industry, not the car business. And this world-class experience you're talking about is a combination of humans and machines. Uh, I know now there are companies coming out that are trying to automate coffee shops and automate making hamburgers and, and automation is occurring everywhere. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, businesses are about both making money and doing the right thing. And it puts us at a very interesting inflection point about where is automation appropriate to create that world-class experience um, without having too much of a threat of eliminating jobs without repurposing them? Well, this is an interesting discussion, one that I had at the Abundance 360, and I've had at a few other major conferences I've attended uh, as a quote-unquote, I, 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 I don't hate the word, but it's an awkward to say thought leader, uh, but I supposedly am. And I had at Wharton last week is, what happens when this, and, and it's my strong belief that the technology is going to outrun our ability for, or the ability for many people to keep up with it. Great example. I think we have about 3 million over the road truck drivers in America. Autonomous trucks are already starting to come online. Probably within 10 years, you'll see a lot of autonomous trucks uh, on the road. I'm a 45 year old truck driver, don't have the strongest education base maybe as other people all I've done is drive trucks for 20 years and all of a sudden my entire industry goes away and that's not just going to happen in that industry it's going to happen in many 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 industries of course new jobs will be created but what do we do about that and, and I'm going to use I, I'm rough numbers for that I'm making up billion and a half people two billion people in the world that are not educated enough to quickly catch up with the technology and this is way out there, but it's it's my belief we're probably going to have a three-generation gap where we have to go back and use education systems for younger people to catch up because the older people aren't going to catch up, in my opinion, which leads us to the idea of universal basic income. And <laughs> I won't go too far on that, but it's every time I've been in a group of CEOs from major companies, we have this discussion. Um, Wharton, other major universities I teach at, at Poland, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore. It's a very challenging question to say, and what are we going to do when we have a whole bunch of people for, for a span of time that are basically unemployable? You know, especially as the world population is declining, right? That's something new that came out of the World uh, Health Organization, um, you know, recently. Uh, I think what's so fascinating about universal basic income is I agree with your statement. I've uh, my mentor, one of them, uh, has sold multiple AI startups, and he does not see any other way around it. Uh, I spoke with another um, AI advisor, and, and the same um, principle keeps occurring that without universal basic income, the quality of life will decrease. Now. The consideration, though, is how do you maintain the quality of life of being human in this new autonomous state um, while maintaining that curiosity, ambition, and drive to be successful? Um, 
No, uh, I was just going to say the reason I shared that question is uh, the results out of Denmark uh, came out that you know the people who've been receiving two thousand to three thousand euros per month, it did remove the stress of of needing to have the paycheck to have food on the table, but it it did nothing to get them employed. It did nothing to help them be more involved in the community. So let me hit on two key ideas. I'll hit one first, and we'll talk about universal basic income. Um, one, and I, I read a lot of theory and I read a lot of research, but then I get to actually go see how it works in companies. And this really hit me, especially with the younger people your age uh, coming into the marketplace or in the marketplace. There's three things now that they look for. Stability, dignity, and purpose. Stability. Do I, can I be sure that I'll have a job that I can make enough money to pay my bills, that my entire industry isn't going to get wiped out? Um, dignity or respect. Uh, do, will I, can I be treated as an individual and my voice will be heard and people will respect my diversity, my ideas and what I bring to the table? And um, the last one is I want to have a sense of purpose. I want to do something that is meaningful where I make a difference in the world. Let's take those three and set them aside. The theory and some of the actual uh, outcome of universal basic income has been some people take that but then they go start a side job. They create, they're an entrepreneur. They create a small company. They do something to make additional money. They say, hey, the two or $3,000 a month is nice, but let me see if I can't go out and make another 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000. So they're entrepreneur or they pursue uh, a passion, painting, art, music, something that is fulfilling and pers uh, purposeful to them, something that matches their values, or they go um, volunteer. They volunteer in the community. They volunteer to help, you know, elderly people, people with Alzheimer's, things like that. Uh, so it, it isn't just people that are going to take the money and sit in their apartment all day long, although there'd be plenty of people that just take it, go buy alcohol or whatever, or sit and play video games for days and never leave their place. But there's also going to be a majority of people that say, no, nah, nah, now that I've got stability, I want to create dignity for myself and I want to do something meaningful and purposeful for my community in the world. And to me, at least, that's that is got to be a major factor in making universal basic income actually work. I think making it work is exactly what you're saying. It's having this curiosity and then what is the right business model to make that work? Because uh, a lot of people are coming from this below the line thinking of, of fear and, and being replaced. Uh, one good model that I've seen out of San Francisco is a boot camp company called Lambda School. And what Lambda School does now is they say, go to our boot camp for six months and we'll pay you $2,000 a month to go to the boot camp for each month of the six months. And then you owe us nothing except an income share agreement based on what you make after your program for a certain period of time. So I think there's several different ways to look at that, you know, UBI, universal basic income model. And uh, the thought process is how soon is it going to become imminent that we need to implement this? I can't make that guess. <laughs> that, that's it, anticipating the market. <laughs> yeah, well, it's sooner rather than later. Um, we're, we're already seeing some of the impacts. And the thing, again, I said is it's accelerating, as you said earlier, faster than we ex expected. Um, I, be, to teach my future business class uh, at Wharton and other places for companies, uh, two things I tell them I will not get a standing ovation from this. Most people will leave crying because 
interestingly enough to me very few people keep up on these things when I start explaining well ex for example I always have to check the speed of the fastest computer in the world the day I teach the class because it changes so fast when I taught it last time the fastest supercomputer in the world did 200,000 trillion operations or computations per second 200,000 trillion CPS um, that's a two with 17 zeros behind it uh, I know that Moore's law we're not sure how much longer it can last because of um, it we're getting so small that I, that technology we just don't have the ability to go any smaller on silicone but then you step up with quantum computing and that takes that 217,000 trillion operation or computations per second and multiplies it by a thousand. What happens when we have computers that can do that sort of um, big, you know, and they, they're attached to the cloud, so they has, have, have access to basically all information available in the world. It's, and you and I both know, it's what's called the technological singularity, which every time I bring it up, my wife tells me to shut up. <laughs> You know, speaking of singularity, uh, the technology world is, it seems to be moving into two different pathways. Uh, one is seamlessly connected all the time in streaming, and we can call that the new 5G and 6G technologies. The, the second one is the remote nature of being disconnected, of being on the edge, of having access to that technology without the internet. Um, that's these uh, you know, drones that could fly in the mountains in Nepal and still know where they're going even without a satellite connection. Um, the reason I share this is thinking of trends. Do you see either one, um, you know, emerging uh, or any other trends that uh, have been fascinating for you this year? Things that are most fascinating are people who are looking at major technologies and figuring out how to use them in industries like the agriculture example I gave you that I would not have thought of as a major tech, cutting edge technological industry. Um, the farmer of the future, to keep on the thing, doesn't have to leave their house. They could track their cattle, the feed, uh, how their crops are doing, how their chickens are doing, on and on and on, all from a computer screen with a joystick, driving tractors around or moving if they need to, um, farm bots doing it, drones over the field, satellite imagery, GPS. Um, and you look at, and I, you know, you look at farmers, farmers are not farmers anymore. They're major corporations with lots of consolidation in that industry. And then I look, I start to look at other industries I'm involved with, and, and they're starting to apply technology in exceedingly innovative and creative ways that I never would have been able to anticipate. Uh, so even with somebody like me who's keeping, keeping up with technology from a business standpoint, every week I learn something new and go, how in the world did they think of that? So I, I think we're gonna see a lot of applications that are at this point in time almost inconceivable uh, because, some, because again, that adjacent new, someone sees an idea in another technology and they, uh, they adapt it to something that was unforeseen. The other side of that is I, I'm involved with a couple of global movements for cleaning plastic up out of the ocean. And I am so excited to see uh, all, it, clean energy, cleaning up the oceans, using that technology to actually make a dent in it and make a difference. And it gives me some hope that we're going to be able to keep the planet semi-clean and uh, 
technology that isn't going to kill the atmosphere and being able to bring back uh, coral reefs and such like that using this amazing technology to rebuild some of the stuff we destroyed. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when I used to be in Florida, uh, I would actually go out on some of the outings uh, with the Billfish Foundation, which I know that you've had uh, quite involvements over the years there. And it's um, great to see the work being done as you're talking about on restoration of coral reefs. Uh, new research came out this year that's showing how you can implant these reefs in you know the great barrier reef and they're actually holding and they're, they're surviving there's new um biodegradable bacteria that's degrading the plastics right which are coming out now so um with the world population it seems you know uh reaching a st stability point we could be moving in a direction of stability for this planet, right? But wow, now that's so out there. These are really big concepts, but you know, questions that you have to think about for the future of business. And uh, you know, maybe a final question here for today on the future of business. You, you've had the privilege and honor to connect with some of the world's great uh, in many different businesses. You know, from what you've heard and from what you're seeing, and and how the market's changing, is there any advice you'd like to share, you know, with our listeners today on how they could be part of that future business and to think like the great leaders out there? Yeah, it's uh, it, it's something I harp on all the time. It's committing yourself to lifelong learning. Uh, it, it's fascinating to me. I just did the research again to make sure I had my numbers right. The average American reads four books per year, and that's fiction and nonfiction combined, and it's heavily weighted towards fiction. If you were to read one business self-help innovation book, something about, you know, out of your thing about robotics or AI or the fourth industrial Re Re revolution, uh, if you read one every month, six a year, you'd be in the top 1% in the United States. If you were to read 12 books a year, you'd be in the top 1% in the world. So the thing I push with every um, executive I work with is you've got to set si a time aside to learn and grow and get on a plane and go see a different factory, meet a different company, get out of your industry, because this stuff is moving fast. And if you aren't constantly bringing in information through through videos and blogs and books and on and on and on, you will be left, you will get blindsided because you will not realize what's coming at you. And again, when I mention this stuff in some of my corporate retreats, at, at some of the colleges I teach at where I do executive education, I will ask some of the questions like, I did one a couple of years ago in the financial industry, gotta be seven years ago. How many have ever heard of Moore's Law? I had 200 people in the room, two people raised their hands. And I said, that's okay, because it's gonna take your, your job away from you within 10 years. And they're like, what now you go to Australia, we've got like 30% robo advisors and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger in America. Uh, and five years ago, these folks didn't even know about computer speed, AI, Moore's Law, or things like that, because they just weren't taking the time to keep themselves updated with information and new ideas that were outside of their scope to allow them to connect the dots, which is the only way that you're going to be successful moving forward. It's the AQ. It's all about the AQ. It's about the adaptability. Uh, it's about being a lifelong learner. Uh, both of us are, and it's such a pleasure for you to be here on the Humane Podcast, um, talking about humans, machines working together in this fourth industrial revolution. Uh, John, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, David. It was a real joy. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Humane. I'm David Jakobovich, and if you enjoyed the show, 
Don't forget to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you in the next one. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.